We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning and happy Friday. It is March 1st, which means that the Texas primaries, as well as Super Tuesday, are just a few days away. And um, the emphasis in this segment is going to be on Texas because there are several races that really are just going to come down to the primaries. There's not even a Democrat challenger in some of them because God bless Texas that are still, uh, a lot of those districts are still very, very red conservative. Um, but one of my very dear friends is running in House District, uh, Texas House District 33, and you all know her from uh, the Trump campaign and uh, also from our work together on Don Huffine's Google notorial uh, campaign and her name is Katrina Pearson and she joins me now. So Katrina, um, I am so excited um, for you to hopefully win this seat. We are all pulling for you uh, for this and um, I'm just, I'm, I'm very grateful that you are standing up to run as a candidate. But um, this primary has been so nasty like several others um, in Texas, including uh, Brandon Gill, who I just had on my Salem TV show, uh, where he was talking about one of his primary opponents that was putting out all kinds of um, you know malicious and false uh, lies about him, just trying to tear him down uh, because he got President Trump's endorsement. And one of your primary challengers is doing the same thing. So um, I'd love for you to just correct the record on who you are, what you stand for, and why uh, you will be the best for Texas House District 33. Well, good morning, Jenna. I'm so excited to be on with you and, you know, take the opportunity to just really talk about this race because, to your point, you know, there's a lot of contentious races in the state of Texas. And, you know, I've been doing this for a very long time here in my state, and we've never seen truly anything like this before, Um, specifically with, you know, Governor Abbott's involvement. You know, there's more than 20 competitive house races in the state this cycle, and the anticipation is about five to 12 incumbents who actually may lose. And it's very difficult to unseat an incumbent in the state of Texas. But in my race specifically in House District 33, which covers all of Rockwall County and a very small percentage of Collin County, but we have a a four-term incumbent who's been heavily entrenched. And there's a three-person race here. Uh, the, The incumbent is Justin Holland. Um, there's someone else in the race and then myself, and the polling shows as we speak today that it is neck and neck, a two-person race between myself and Justin Holland. And what's unfortunate, you know, to your point is, you know, we do have a lot of these Republicans who attack conservatives 
um, the way Democrats attack conservatives, but they would never attack Democrats <laughs> the way they do us. And so I've been one of the recipients on that end. And, you know, the TV ads are nasty. And, you know, we've been running a very positive campaign because uh, House District 33 is really one of the most conservative districts in the state of Texas. And the incumbent, who has been very disappointing, and I'm, I'm sure many of your, your audience listeners have heard about um, the incredible historic impeachment of Attorney General Ken Paxton, who is by far, you know, a thorn in the Biden administration's side and one of the most conservative, if not the most conservative attorney general in the state of Texas. And so voters are wondering why on earth would a handful of Republicans vote unanimously with Democrats to impeach attorney, to impeach attorney general Ken Paxton but luckily, um, the Senate did not follow through on that, and we have our attorney general back in the state. But it just goes further and beyond, like voting for Joe Biden's gun control. Um, this is something that House District 33 just can't seem to wrap their minds around. And Justin Holland stands by it. He absolutely stands by it. We had the most uh, Muslim supportive legislative session this last time. We can't figure that out, especially considering what's been going on in Israel. So there's just a lot of people in Texas who are quite confused on why Republicans are taking the stands that they're taking, not just against their constituents, but just against their party, against their attorney general, and against our own governor. And, you know, I think a lot of people uh, who are outside of Texas are kind of looking at Texas wondering, is it going to go blue? Is it going to uh, become more and more liberal? And especially, as you mentioned, Katrina Pearson, with the uh, the, the sham impeachment of uh, Ken Paxton, and we covered that extensively on this show. And what I learned through uh, speaking to um, the the uh, Texas GOP chair, uh, Matt Rinaldi, and, and some of the other guests that we had on is, that, is how much so many Republicans Republicans in the Texas House are favorable toward Democrats. I mean, they're basically Democrat light. And so it's encouraging, I think, that there are so many races in the state of Texas that true conservatives like you are running to unseat incumbents. And this is a huge opportunity on Tuesday, on March 5th, for Texas conservatives to turn out and really fundamentally change the state back to what it should be. Well, you are absolutely right. And, you know, Texas is the only state that does this. You know, they continue to share power with Democrats. And and that's why many of us have always said Texas is really blue because people outside of Texas, and unfortunately a lot of people in Texas, at least until this last cycle, were completely unaware that the Texas speaker was chosen by Democrats. They make these deals and only need a handful of Republicans to hold power in the state. And that's how we... We don't get our legislation passed. I mean, Texas is in the shadows of Florida when it comes to election integrity. Our elections are not secure in Texas. We're in the shadows of Florida when it comes to illegal immigration. We have Republicans who refuse to eliminate the magnets and do anything to support uh, to protect our Texans from the mass immigration that we're having coming in um, to our state. And we just can't seem to wrap our brains around it. But now people like myself who've been recruited by communities um, to step up against these Republicans and demand conservative representation, we're being attacked. And it's not just political attacks, Jenna, and that's what's so important here. They're personal attacks. They're smear campaigns. Um, just an example, 
you know, my opponent, Justin Holland, who claims to be a devout Christian, is running a television ad saying that I'm connected to a pornographic agency. I had to explain to my 11-year-old niece and my 6-year-old niece what that even meant. So it's very disturbing. On top of that, he says that I called the GOP racist, which you and I both know. (laughs) That is absolutely absurd. I'm just fortunate enough that the people here have watched me on national television, on Fox News, you know, defending conservative Republicans from the racism, the sexism, the misogyny, you know, the xenophobic attacks for well over a decade. And the fact that I was Donald Trump's national campaign spokesperson in 2016 speaks for itself. So a lot of people are understanding here in the district that he's just very desperate. Justin Holland is very desperate to hold power. Um, He's still protecting the AFL-CIO back speaker who was elected by Democrats. And what's really scary is they actually appointed an Obama administration uh, lawyer to oversee our parliamentary process. And then we wonder why our bills get killed, but yet 200 Democrat bills get passed. We have to end that practice in the state of Texas or we're going to lose our state. And if we lose Texas, we're going to lose everything. So true. And, and especially if you look at the Electoral College math and why uh, the Biden administration is not securing the border and why so many things are dependent on Texas staying conservative, uh, we need to use our votes in the best possible way. And I'm speaking with Katrina Pearson, who is running for Texas House District 33. You can find out more about what she actually stands for, not the attack ads, at KatrinaForTexas.com. That's KatrinaForTexas.com. And obviously, um, AFR and AFA um, do not make endorsements as a nonprofit, all of that. But just in my personal capacity, um, I can tell you as listeners, I have known Katrina uh, for years and we worked together um, very closely on uh, former President Trump's campaign. And then, of course, Don Huffines. And she is a person of integrity. She is a solid uh, Christian. She is someone who understands conservatism and values. And I was very excited to see her throw her hat in the ring and to run. And these kind kinds of attacks um, are just are so uncalled for uh, by conservatives. I mean, you would, Katrina, expect this kind of thing from maybe a Democrat opponent Mm -hmm. that is willing to get in the mud. But what we're seeing in so many of these races is the outing of the establishment Democrat light Republicans that are showing that they are really more like Democrats in their lack of values, their lack of truth telling and their willingness to get in the mud um, instead of being solid conservatives that will carry states like Texas uh, back to the roots and and their founding values. You've been a part of the Texas um, GOP and, and the Tea Party, all that for years and years. And so for people who maybe don't know some of that background, I mean, you have been involved in the grassroots in Texas. Texas for a really long time. And I know just from our conversations personally that you're doing this because you care about Texas. Absolutely. You know, we've been fighting for conservative Christian values in the state since 2009 as one of the original founders of the Tea Party movement. I've been in Austin for several sessions fighting to stop this practice of allowing Democrats to choose our speaker. I've been formally acknowledged by the Texas legislature, the 83rd legislature, for my work here in the state and across the country. And I actually retired after the 2020 campaign. I came home to my family, thought I was going to get to go back to having a normal life (laughs) until the folks here came to me and they said, you know, we need you because this is what's happening. And it was very disturbing. 
And I don't want someone who's giving my state away to Democrats to represent me. So if I can do anything about it, I absolutely will. I love my state. I love my country. And I refuse to stand by and allow people like Justin Holland to make his power plays and, and enrich himself and his buddies on the backs of Texas taxpayers and, and allowing the leftist, liberal unions and everything else come in and take over our state. We are going to fight until the bitter end. The election is March 5th. People can still vote early until the end of today, actually, 7 p.m. So we encourage everyone to get out and vote early. And definitely, this is a change election. So March 5th, everything hangs on the line. Mm. And and this may end up going to a runoff, uh, Katrina Pearson. And and um, for people in Texas who, you know, maybe this is their first time voting or they're not totally sure how all of that works. I mean, if you get out and vote and, and it doesn't go to a runoff, then um, then then you're done. But um, if it does go to a runoff, then what does that process look like in terms of people still uh, getting out and supporting you? Um, great question. Yeah, this race could absolutely go to a runoff. And if that happens on March 5th, um, the way it would work is one person needs to achieve 50% plus one um, to advance to the general. Um, there is no Democrats in this race, but whoever wins this primary will be the representative of House District 33. If someone fails to achieve 50 plus one, then it does go to a runoff, which is scheduled for May 24th. So you're going to have to get out and vote again. Um, so just keep that in mind. Um, we feel really good about the race. The polls have us neck and neck. If the undecideds break our way, we have a real possibility of winning this outright, which would be great. That would send a message to Austin. And we just need people to get out there and turn out the vote. Mm. And, and it all comes down to voting and, and for so many people who are so concerned about issues and and policy and and frustrations with you know things that are going on. This is an opportunity uh, for Texas to get out and vote. Um, and regardless of what state you are listening to this program from, know uh, the last state to register to vote. You can always go cast a provisional ballot, some of those things. But make sure you're registered. Make sure you know these states. Make sure you know what your state's process looks like, because uh, Texas with this type of of runoff um, may look a little different than other states. So you need to be aware of how you can exercise uh, not only your constitutionally protected right to vote, but I would I would term it as a duty and an obligation uh, to vote. And so um, Todd and Copper, my little dogs, are voicing support for you as well, Katrina, <laughs> right now and hearing uh, somebody that's at my door probably uh, – you know, some, somebody hopefully not bringing me, you know, one of those mailers from Justin Holland, but, you know, we'll see. So <laughs> Katrina Pearson, <laughs> uh, really appreciate your time today. So great to speak with you. You can go to KatrinaForTexas.com. Learn more about Katrina Pearson for House District 33. You can always follow uh, Todd and Copper at 2Dudes underscore Copper and Todd. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Last 
year because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. When Antoinette found out she was pregnant, she was in a very bad place. She didn't know how she could raise a child on her own. She searched for an abortion clinic and God led her to a preborn clinic where she met her baby on ultrasound. When she saw her baby and heard the heartbeat, she broke down crying and the nurse reminded her that babies are a blessing from God. She chose life. Her daughter's name is Treasure because she is a gift from God. Each of these babies are truly miraculous and every day preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, there is a live stream event on March 7th, so that is next Thursday that you are going to want to tune into, and this is a debate, a part of the First Word debate series that is hosted by the First Lutheran Church of Houston, and this will be on the topic of John 6.44, uh, does John 6.44 teach unconditional election, and so uh, what does exactly did uh did Jesus mean when he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them? Uh, this is a debate between Leighton Flowers, a former Calvinist, and James White, a current Calvinist. And so Leighton Flowers joins me now. And uh, welcome back to the show. And uh, this is um, going to be, it's already sold out in person. Um, so if you're in the Houston area, uh, already sold out, but it will be live, live streamed at flhouston.org. And uh, Leighton, um, you know, when you joined the program before, um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of listeners wrote in um, expressing, you know, thanks for talking about this, this theological topic of um, Calvinism versus uh, not Calvinism and and some of these um, verses that Calvinists use to teach um, the doctrine of, of TULIP. And so um, on this debate specifically, um, this is set up because this particular verse, and, and, and my uh, my understanding is that the whole debate is just going to be on this one verse. Why is this so significant? Well, there are proof texts that are often used by both sides to really demonstrate their particular view. And, and oftentimes, you know, the debate surrounds those proof texts. And one of my pet peeves is when it just becomes a volleying of text. Oh, you think it's John 6. Well, I say John 3, 3.16. And, you know, and then you say Romans nine, and then I say, you know, first Timothy two, four, you know, God desires all to be saved. And so you just kind of go volleying back and forth instead of understanding, as I think we all must, that, that the scripture is unified. It's, it's not contradictory. And so you need to be willing to stand toe to toe with someone and say, this is how I interpret that passage. Um, and it, and it doesn't require Calvinism to interpret it. Um, and so that, that's basically what I'll be doing with Dr. White is showing the audience that John chapter six is not uniquely supporting Calvinistic theology. Um, though if you assume Calvinism is true, you come into the text believing in Calvinistic soteriology, then it does sound like John six teaches Calvinism, just like Romans nine sounds like it's teaching Calvinism. If you come in with certain presuppositions already established in your mind. 
it it's called the confirmation bias. It's it's one of those things you you see what you want to see because of your presuppositions or your tradition or the way in which you've uh, understood things. And so we all have uh, our traditions. We all have our presuppositions. Uh, the question is, and really the debate is, which one is the correct presupposition? And so that's really what the debate's going to be about. It's going to really be about what what does the Bible teach with regard to God's love and his provision for all people, or does God love and provide only for some people, uh, namely his elect? And this debate will be March 7th at 7 p.m., so next uh, Thursday between uh, James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries and Leighton Flowers, my guest today of Soteriology 101, and uh, take a hyper-focused look at John's Gospel and exactly uh, what that text means. And and as you were describing uh, the kind of volleying of, of texts back and forth, um, I think you're so right, uh, Leighton Flowers, to, to distinguish that from, for example, what lawyers do. Um, that's often oral argument where you say, well, look at this body of case law and all of these cases that suggest um, they support my theory of the Constitution or theory of the case. And then the opposing counsel says, well, here's all of these other cases. And then you try to distinguish them. But courts, of course, can have divergent opinions where the Bible, as you rightly recognize, is unified. And so we shouldn't mm-hmm. look at debates in the same way we would debate legislation or we would debate interpretation even of of, of the Constitution, um, because bodies of case law, of course, says, um, you know, secondary um, opinions, of course, not the original text, uh, can get it wrong and can uh, diverge in their opinions. But when we're looking at the actual text of the Bible, um, it is unified. And um, so so from a, a 30,000 foot perspective of, of debates themselves, um, a lot of Christians would say, well, these kind of debates are are divisive. Um, They're not ever really edifying and educational because um, nobody's really convinced through these kinds of things. Um, What would your response be as to why you participate in something like this? And I'm certainly encouraging my audience to to tune in to this debate because I think they are uh, going to learn something. Yeah. I I mean, I think evidence shows otherwise. I I get messages in my inbox on a regular, very regular basis about people who watch my first debate who are now convinced of more of a provisionist side uh, that God provides for all people. Um, I'm sure other people are convinced other directions. That's because we have free will after all. And so when you, when you have the ability to deliberate and make choices based upon the evidence in front of you, that that's demonstrating that we do have a libertarian freedom of the will, meaning we have the ability to deliberate and make choices. Whereas on Calvinism, God has ordained all that comes to pass. In other words, he decrees, he ultimately determines everything, which by necessity would mean that he even decrees for his own children to misinterpret the scripture. Because if I'm wrong and I'm misinterpreting John six forty four, then on Calvinism, I'm doing that because that's what God decreed for me to do. And I don't believe that's tenable. I don't know that how you defend that kind of worldview to say that God would decree his own children, some of his own children to misinterpret the Bible. And then other of his children, he gives them, uh, he decrees for them to interpret it rightly. And the fact that every single Christian theologian has a divergent view uh, on some doctrines. I mean, even among Calvinists, there's many diverging views, even among Calvinists. Well, then you have to conclude if God decrees whatsoever comes to pass in that way, that God has decreed for, people to misinterpret his own word. And, and some, some doctrines don't need to be refuted. They just need to be clearly stated so that people can see them for the absurdity that they are teaching that God ordains his own children to misinterpret the Bible, I think is just demonstrably and intuitively absurd. And so that that's another thing you just got to kind of point out to people to help them to see 
where certain theistic deterministic worldviews lead people. And, and once you see its, you know, its implications, then you begin to realize that as much as the text may sound like it's saying something that supports Calvinistic doctrine, maybe I need to back away and objectively reevaluate what I'm reading here because possibly, and very likely, if you look throughout Christian history and look at the best scholars from both sides, there is a better alternative than the theistic determinism offered by the Calvinistic worldview. I'm speaking with Leighton Flowers of uh, his ministry, Soteriology 101, and about this debate that will be March 7th at 7 p.m., and you can live stream that at flhouston.org. And um, and a number of other churches will be carrying that on uh, their their YouTube channels as well. And um, Leighton, I, I think it's so true that as Christians, we should not take a um, a, a veneer of an opinion and just presume that because our current church teaches it a certain way or because we were raised a certain way or that was the first explanation we heard of biblical interpretation that we necessarily always get it right or that we can't be more informed and change our position after hearing and deliberating over the evidence and what debates should do if if they are in good faith. Um, of course, debates, formal debates should be a discussion, should have evidence and proofs, not just arguments. Um, lawyers are often accused of just loving to argue. I hate arguing because that means that mm-hmm. we're just quarreling and it's not actually advancing anything. But if we're debating and truly wanting to understand the other's position so that we can come to uh, the best Um, understanding of especially what scripture actually teaches, we're called to do that as Christians. We are called Mm -hmm. to deliberate, to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so um, this isn't just divisive. I mean, there are certainly in-house debates and um, in-house discussions. This isn't an atheist, for example, against a Christian. But at the same time, um, even these in-house debates are so important because we need to rightly divide Uh, truth from error, and we need to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And these types of informed debates uh, can genuinely be helpful. And so for um, for people who may be Calvinist, and we have a lot of those listeners, um, they, they know I am I am not a Calvinist um, for all of the reasons that, that you have articulated and more, um, because I believe that the Bible clearly teaches free will and, and you know, all of the things that you uh, discuss in terms of soteriology. But we have a, a, a segment of the AFR audience that is Calvinist. How would you suggest that, uh, that these people who have... Uh, who adhere to the doctrine of Calvinism approach this debate with potentially um, an open mind. Well, I think you make a great point. Um, You know, throughout history, church history included, there have been diverging opinions. Uh, Even among Peter and Paul, there were diverging opinions and they would have discussions about these things, public discussions. In fact, I I think the, um, you know, the feigning of, Oh my gosh, it's so, it's so um, divisive. Um, sometimes is what's caused a lot of times men to want to leave the church in some ways because the church is used to be uh, kind of the place where the gather at the the city gates and the politics and the the the, the laws and all the things came through and by the church and I'm you know obviously there's some um, there's some downsides to those kinds of things as well but the point is is that the church uh, can can be the leader in politics and the leader in law and the leader. Uh, speaking out, it's it's when the church begins to people in the church start saying, "Oh, shoot, be be quiet, don't don't talk about those things that are controversial," and then we become benign to society when we're not willing to confront and to talk. the The question is not whether you confront; it's it's how and 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 what spirit you do that. 
And unfortunately, you're you're correct that sometimes it can become contentious, and that people can not be, uh, you know, sometimes not good faith interlocutors and really um, arguing with the best intentions in mind. But my hope is that my Calvinistic friends understand that my my goal here is not to to cast you out of the kingdom or say that you're not really Christians or that you're not my brothers and sisters. But instead, just to say, I, I, I hope that you can understand why I have rejected Calvinistic theology and why I don't understand John 6, 44, for example, the same way that you do. And, and ask them just honestly, do, could you, if you had to, if you had to defend my side, if you had to explain what I believe about Romans 9 or John 6 or Ephesians 1, could you? Because in my experience, very few Calvinists have taken the time to get outside their echo chamber long enough to understand what the best scholars from the other worldview actually teach. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people try to paint my view uh, or the Arminian view um, or anybody who disagrees with them in such a caricatured language that I, I don't even recognize it. And so that can happen on both sides, where both sides feel like they're being misrepresented, um, that both sides don't feel like the other side's really understanding them. And so I always strive uh, to to say to be able to say I understand before I say I disagree, and so I, mm. I want to hear you in your own words. I want to play you, uh, try to steel man you instead of straw man you. In other words, find the best possible meaning you could you could be meaning by what you said. Don't try to one upsmanship and try to make you look bad or take you out your quotes out of context and and play them out of context and then try to try to make you believe you know try try to make your audience believe you. You, you, that your opponent believes something they really don't believe all that's just bad faith. And that that's not what a good Christian brother should do. Uh, unfortunately it happens all too often and we have to call that out, but I, I've strived and I'm sure I've made some stumbles along the way, but I've strived to really model for my audience, how it is that we can disagree without being overly disagreeable that we can seek to understand instead of seeking to win the argument, seek to win the relationship. You know, seek to get to know a person well enough to be able to still shake hands once you get up from that coffee table and still be friends, even though you may theologically disagree over uh, a few things. Um, and so th I think that's the spirit we have to have within the church, learning how to disagree with maturity as Christian brothers and sisters should. Absolutely. And and I so wish that we could take uh, that explanation and apply it as well to politics and policy, because oh, um, yes. there are so I mean, so often you just see uh, how many people are using bad faith arguments and strawmans and saying, you know, my opponent believes this and it's totally false or a manipulation or a perversion. And then they knock it down and say, you know, I'm more America first or I'm better because, uh, and, and of course, if that were really the position of their opponent, then, then yeah. But often you have, especially in primaries, um, several really good candidates that agree on, on virtually everything there may be a few disagreements and it just comes down mm -hmm. to who you think would do a better job but especially like we we've just seen in the Republican primary um for example one of the things that was so frustrating to me was seeing how um, there were so many lies that were perpetuated against uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. And people may prefer uh, President Trump, and, and, and I think they did, and that's been very clear because he's the likely nominee. But I just wish that we could stop lying about each other. And all of that bad faith, and that's Amen. why logical fallacies are um, are we need to know them because we need to be able to see where we may be manipulated by advertisements or other people's arguments or even in uh, some of the debates. And so, you know, and I yeah. think a lot of people 
um, see that the political debates are not very fruitful. Um, they're almost incredibly yeah. useless where this type of debate that you're going to participate in with Dr. White um, should give people a better understanding of both positions so that people can make an informed decision for themselves on the evidence. And and that's what we should really strive for. Um, and I think that's that's a wonderful way of expressing it. And, um, and, and yet it seems like a lot of people, especially in today's more hostile uh, culture where we're all about gotcha um, moments, we don't have a an attention base to to say we really want to engage um, this kind of reasoning and, and we should. Yeah. And I think it starts with not assuming that just because somebody disagrees with you that they have nefarious intentions. And that, that's true in the theological debates as well as in the political debates. Um, I, I may strongly, and I do strongly disagree with with many of my friends who are more Democratic-leaning, if that makes sense, or more on the Democrat side of things. Um, but sometimes I, I, I have to understand that though they believe differently than I do, it doesn't mean they have a bad intention that they're trying to burn down you know, buildings and all these horrible bad things about them. They have a different opinion than me. And, and I, I think we should defend our views without just assuming that the person who disagrees with us has nefarious intentions just because they disagree. Yeah, really, really well said. And I mean, I've, I have some friends who are Democrats and people often say, how can that be possible? Well, it's because they just genuinely have a different view of policy and the way and what uh, the legitimate role of government is. And, you know, some of these other things, just like some Christians have um, various views on eschatology, for example, than I do. But um, I'm, I'm going to still love them and we can still talk about it. And at the end of the day, we can still both be Christians, just like hopefully we can all still be Americans. So I'm talking with my guest this morning, Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101. That debate will be live streamed flhouston.org March 7th at 7 p.m. We'll be right back with more. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back, and I'm talking with my special guest this morning, Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101, and he is going to be participating in a good faith debate with Dr. James White of the Alpha and Omega Ministries uh, in Houston on March 7th at 7 p.m. That will be live streamed. Um, it's already sold out in person, so for everyone listening, you can live stream, and I would encourage you to. I will be watching it uh, because I want to know, as we've been discussing, Leighton, I want to know the correct positions. Um, I've I very, um, I guess, famously to to my audience um, represented Pastor John MacArthur and his church, and they um, are Reformed Calvinists. And I had a lot of conversations um, with with Dr. MacArthur, wanting to understand his position, even though I am not Reformed, and we're still um, very good friends. And I still, uh, you know, talk to their church um, and and have you know, so many friends that are part of Grace Community Church, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything um, that is taught. And that should be the perspective of Christians, as you were mentioning before the break, um, to enter into these conversations, whether it's about theology or politics or um, you know, any topic in good faith, not wanting to straw man the other person and, um, and, and pointing out things or perverting their argument, um, but rather having a good faith discussion. So you also participated in another debate around the question of limited atonement. Um, so what did that debate look like and the doctrine of limited atonement um, from a Calvinist versus uh, what, what you and I would agree a, a correct interpretation of Scripture? 
Yeah, I did. I didn't participate, but I did watch the debate. It was between uh, James White, who I will be debating, obviously in March, but uh, he was debating uh, Jason Brita. And I thought the conversation was okay. Um, there were parts of the conversation that I, I wish would have gone different directions and uh, more of a focus on the the actual points of contention. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, that's one of the downsides of moderated debates is that in, instead of just having a casual conversation between two brothers, sometimes the limitations, the time limitations and those kinds of things uh, make it difficult to really get to the meat of the issue. But the, the doctrine of atonement is probably the most debated, even among the Reformed tradition, the Calvinistic tradition. Um, most people understand and agree that uh, that a, a form of uh, universal extent of the atonement, in other words, Christ died for all people, was actually a view most likely held by John Calvin himself and most Reformers prior to the Synod of Dort. Um, and so I think uh, David Allen does a really good job in his work uh, demonstrating how even among Calvinists, most people believe in a universal extent of the atonement, meaning Christ died for the sins of everyone in the world, uh, rather than the view that Dr. White was uh, uh, defending, which is that Christ died only for the sins of his elect. Right. And this is um, such an important topic. And um, and my apologies, I thought you were part of that debate, but rather than just a spectator. But um, but I think that you're so right that the difference between just a free flowing conversation versus a moderated debate, you know, again, that's the, one of the main issues I had with a lot of the political debates is that um, the time frame is just so short. And then it seems like the moderator just wants to get out all of their questions and they have maybe a different view of what's important than the people who are actually speaking because they're the ones who are advocating for the various positions. Um, so, so sometimes though, in free flowing, just conversations, one person can tend to dominate or things can go on rabbit trails and all of this but uh, but this is why you know some of these these uh, discussions that can be you know several hours or don't necessarily have a hard and fast um, stopping point can be the most fruitful and some of those have been some of the best conversations I've had with people um, who are friends who disagree with me if we're just you know sitting over dinner and just you know continue to talk until the restaurant kicks us out um, you know those are some of the best conversations um, but when we're talking about you know limited atonement um, from the the perspective of the Calvinist, um, why why is this such a central tenet to them in um, in how they interpret and understand Scripture? Because from from my view, um, the, the Bible is clear that the atonement was for all, and it is um, offered to all, and only some will accept. But um, if if Christ only came and um, and gave the atonement for some, then what good is it to evangelize? Because I may be talking to someone who Christ didn't die for under that theology. Right. And just as, you know, first John two, two says, uh, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I, I don't think you can get much more clear than that. I think the reason that uh, many Calvinists have adopted the, the limited extent of the atonement is because it is logically more consistent with the claims of their whole systematic. Uh, after all, if Christ, um, if, if God has only chosen certain people, the elect, then it only makes sense logically that Jesus would only come to die for those people. Uh, why, why would he die for everybody if he's only intending to save those he's unilaterally picked before they were even born? And so logically, it makes more sense on Calvinism to believe in limited atonement. The problem is, is that there's no scripture that supports it 
at least that I can find. Um, and and I, I David Allen is very well known for saying that uh, limited atonement is a doctrine in search of a text. There's just no clear biblical t- teaching that says Christ only died for the elect. Now, there are teachings, for example, that says he lays down his life for the church or he lays down his life for his sheep. And some Calvinists will use what's called the negative inference fallacy, saying, well, look here. See, it says he laid down his life for the church. That means he only laid down his life for the church. And they ignore, or at least they explain away the text, which, like First John 2, 2 says, he not only dies for us, lays down his life for us, but for the world. And the negative inference fallacy can be explained pretty easily. Even Paul himself said, you know, Christ laid down his life for me. Well, using the negative inference fallacy, you could say, oh, well, therefore, he only laid down his life for Paul. And nobody obviously holds to that extreme of a position. But that's how a negative inference fallacy works. Just because the scriptures points out that God laid down his life for his sheep or the believers doesn't necessarily, therefore, mean he didn't lay down his life for the sins of the world. And so that's kind of where the debate uh, basically is, is focused upon on those particular issues and how those verses are taken. Mm, and and that makes so much sense. I mean, that would be like saying if I tell my mom I love you, then that by negative inference means I don't love my dad. Well, no, you know, right. it's I, I can I can love both of them, but just be expressing that uh, to one parent at a time. And um, you know, and you mentioned Leighton Flowers um, earlier that you know a lot of people who um, hold to various um, tenets of theology are are doing so because maybe that was the the first thing they were taught, or it made more sense. But a lot of a lot of times as well. Um, people have a view of scripture that is uh, that is frankly self serving in in some ways to say well you know this is what my church says or this is what I want to believe for um, for various reasons and um, and it seems like to me that a lot of the Calvinistic churches are very um, intellectually based and it seems like a lot of the people who want to be intellectuals go to Calvinist churches. Um, but you know, have, have you experienced that in terms of the reason that that some people believe um, Calvinist doctrines, even though um, maybe they they have been confronted with some of these um, you know, the, these examples of why the doctrine is wrong? Yeah, it's part of my testimony. Um, I, I mean, I, I was raised in a normal kind of uh, whosoever will kind of Baptist church that always just taught everybody can be saved and God loves everybody kind of uh, doctrine. But I was never really trained in how to understand the doctrine of predestination or the doctrines of election from the scripture. I never really went that deep. And so I was one into Calvinism, introduced to John MacArthur and, and uh, John Piper and R.C. Sproul. And I, I loved these guys because they seemed so much deeper and so much more intellectual. And so the pendulum kind of swung for me away from that whosoever will non-Calvinistic doctrine into Calvinism because it seemed to be a lot more deep and more intellectual, especially compared to the very surface level, you know, seeker sensitive kinds of pastors. And, And again, I'm not trying to put all of them down or anything of that nature. Some of them have really good motivations to try to reach the lost. But for me, I really wanted something deep and exegetical. And it wasn't until much later in life that I came to learn that, uh, there are a lot of very deep intellectual types. For example, it was through reading a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer that I began to question Calvinism um, because I realized A.W. Tozer wasn't a Calvinist. I just assumed that he was because John Piper quoted, uh, quoted him a lot, and I, I assumed he was smart. He knew a lot of the Bible, and so he must be a Calvinist. He must be one of us. Same with C.S. Lewis. I just assumed he was one of us because he was smart. 
And uh, and then I began to learn he actually spoke out against Calvinism. Both of those uh, those men did. And once I began to really study the other side, I began to see there's a lot of really strong scholars who did not affirm Calvinism and, and for good reasons when you take the time to study it. Yeah. And, and, um, Tozer is one of my absolute favorites. And I remember my parents giving me, um, the trilogy of his books and especially the, um, the, the purpose of man, that was just such a wonderful book. And I I try to read that every year because it's, um, it's, it's just so good. But, um, but, you know, as you were describing Leighton Flowers about, you know, kind of wanting that, um, deeper, more intellectual experience, it reminds me of some friends, um, that, that I have known over the past, you know, decade or so, um, that have gone to Catholicism actually for some of the exact same reasons. And they're saying, you know, we want structure, we want tradition, we want, you know, some of these things, um, that the Catholic church offers without recognizing, but here are all of the doctrines that I'm saying that I assent to. And this is why I think it's so important that instead of um, just finding maybe community in intellectuals or um, or tradition or some of these things, that we really take the time as Christians to study what these various doctrines say and teach and make an informed decision on what we truly believe the Bible says. Absolutely. And, and I think that's very important to understand is that, you know, we are called to be good Bereans and to go to the scriptures. And uh, and I understand the pendulum swing tendency. It happens all the time in, in politics as well as in the church. You know, a, a particular doctrine becomes very popular and then and then the, the next generation swings a total opposite direction from that. And, and I think uh, mature Christians need to look for that balance between those two extremes. And so oftentimes what we've seen, if you study history, that Calvinism has risen up in popularity about four times over the last 500 years since, you know, John, John Calvin lived. And, uh, and each time it dies back out. Uh, and I think it's, that's because it's a not, it's not a tenable way of living life. It's not practical. It doesn't stand the test of time. It doesn't really work. Um, and therefore it, it, it does, it doesn't stay around. It, it, it surges up in popularity and then it dies back out again. Now, either that's happening because God decreed it to happen. And I, as I joke with my Calvinist friends, or it really is true that the system itself isn't tenable. It's not livable. And, and I think that's just true of theistic determinism in general. I, I don't think we live like determinism is true. I think we live like free will is true. Like we are really responsible and that cho- our choices matter and that the decisions that we make, um, we're being held accountable for them because we could have done otherwise. And whenever there's a theological system that steps in and, and in any way, even by implication, even unintentionally removes that responsibility or makes it seem as if the reason that people are rejecting the gospel is because God first rejected them because God didn't really love them. God doesn't really want to have a relationship with them. I think that undermines not only God's character and his expression of love for all people, but it undermines also the blameworthiness of the sinner because ultimately the sinner on Calvinism is rejecting a God who first rejected him. And is not is is refusing to love a God who first re- refused to love him, and that to me seems much less blameworthy than the person who's rejecting a God who loves and provides for him. And so that's one of the reasons I defend provisionism and the views that I hold to is really because it defends the character of God and also the blameworthiness of the unbeliever who rejects God because they're rejecting a God who genuinely loves them and sent Jesus to die for them. 
And therefore they're much more blameworthy on our view than on the Calvinist view and in our view and from our, from my perspective, at least. Yeah. And one of the books that I read that um, really informed me on exactly what you're talking about is uh, titled what love is this by Dave Hunt. And it's a, Mm -hmm. um, it's a refutation of, uh, of Calvinism and, and goes kind of some of those point by points. And, and for people, I'm just in the last few minutes I have with you, Leighton Flowers, um, who are listening to this and they're thinking, well, where do I even start with trying to understand what Calvinism teaches and, and what, um, you know, I believe about what the scriptures exposit. Um, Leighton has a great website, uh, soteriology101.com. And where would you suggest that people begin um, with uh, all of the resources that you offer? Yeah, they're, they're at the like you said, the, the website does have some guidance there. And on the YouTube channel, um, you can find some. I do have three books. In fact, the third book is just about to come out. It's called Drawn by Jesus which is really uh, compiled in my preparation for this debate that I'm having with James White on March 7th. And uh, his book is called Drawn by the Father, which he is really focusing on John 6, whereas mine mine is titled, uh, conversely, uh, Drawn by Jesus, because it really gets into John chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, once I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And it really shows the contrast between the Calvinistic interpretation of the drawing of the Father and his Son um, versus the provisionist view of those two things. And so I would encourage people to pick up that book. Um, there's also a couple other books, uh, the, the Potter's Promise, as well as God's Provision for All. Um, all of those uh, walk through different aspects of these doctrines for those that want to dive in deeper. And that website is soteriology101.com. And that debate is going to be March 7th, Thursday at 7 p.m. And you can go to flhouston.org. That's First Lutheran Houston, which is hosting this debate. Leighton Flowers, I so appreciate your ministry, your desire to uh, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and to encourage other Christians um, to think deeply about these topics and to agree and disagree in love. So thanks so much for joining me and everyone have a fantastic weekend and I will see you Monday morning. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.